0: Great, thank you very much, and um, it's good, thank you for coming. It's just great to be with you, um, and I'm sorry for putting it on in half term, and I'm sorry for making it clash with the liverpool Munich game, that was not... I, when I found out I'd done that as a Liverpool fan, I felt very stupid, so sorry about that. Um, but what we're going to do is try and do this very interactively, so uh, we, I'll set up, a, do a little bit of talking, and then get people talking on tables, and then talk a bit more, and then back on tables, and then we'll do some Q&A at the end... And we'll definitely be finished by half past nine. That's okay. So it's not going to be one of those things that just runs on and on. And if we're done before that because no one has questions, then great. Um, My experience is often people do have questions, but that's that's you're right. Sorry, it's just, yeah, I can see people just wandering in and waving and just, it's a nice, relaxed atmosphere. There's a whole bunch of chairs over, a little circle of chairs over there, and a number of free chairs here for some reason. People don't want to be in the firing line, I can feel, I can feel that. Um, but what I want to do is to, really, we're going to try and talk tonight about how we, uh, how we respond to, again, the New Testament makes a, uh, an expectation of Christians... And I'm assuming most of us are Christians, some of us won't be, and we've got questions of our own. some of us are Christians and we're asking questions that other people have, and some of us are Christians, as Hillary just said, who have our own questions about the faith, and it's good to have them it's good to air them. but the New Testament expects us to answer people well, and in fact, the two New Testament passages that specifically tell ordinary Christians to evangelize in the letters both talk about answering in fact they I don't think there's a New Testament text in, the, in any of the letters that says, you should go and preach the gospel, although I think you should. But actually, there's two, there are two references where it talks about evangelism. Both assume that Christians are going to be asked questions and need to learn how to answer them well. So in Colossians 4, 5 to 6, Paul says, "Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, that's people who aren't in the church, making the best use of the time, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you might know how you ought to answer every person. So the expectation is actually not necessarily that you're going to even start a conversation, although often we do. We talk a lot about that in the REACH series we're doing on Sundays. But that actually people will ask you, and you'll have to come up with an answer and have to know. So there's this expectation from Paul, that's what will happen. And Peter does the same. Peter uses a a slightly different word. But he says in 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. And that word defense is like a technical legal word. The word apologia gives us our word apologetics, if you've heard that English word, which doesn't mean I'm going to spend an hour and a half saying, here's how to say sorry. But it originally meant, here's a defense or an answer for why I believe a certain thing. You would do it in a court if someone was accusing you. You'd say, oh no, here's my, my answer to what you've accused me of. And in a sense, there's then this expectation that people will be observing the lives of Christians, often as they cope with suffering, and then say, so what's, what's the explanation here? How do you account for your faith? And how on earth do you believe in a resurrected dead guy? Or how on earth do you believe that or this or whatever? So that's the expectation, is that there's going to be an answer needed for those of us who are believers. And so I need to say, before we get into any of the specific questions, if you like, answers are not often the best answer. That's the strange thing to say, but the answer to the question is often not the main thing that's going on in a conversation. And many of us have done this long enough to know that, that you're in a discussion with somebody and you realise that the the question is not always the question. Because, if you see what I mean, the the question the person's asking could be answered intellectually fine, but the real question the person's asking is, can I, might be, for instance, can I push this point and have you still like me? Or is there any intellectual foundation to this thing at all? Or is it just hocus pocus? Or whatever, or I, can you love people who disagree with you? Or whatever it might be. The question that's being asked might, you know, somebody says, why does God allow suffering to take the most common one? That might be the the primary question, but underneath it, there's probably a whole host of other things that a person might be wanting to engage with, and that you might, if you've got that question yourself. And most of us, because we don't operate just as logical thinkers, but as feelers, as lovers, as doers, most of us need more than just an intellectual answer. We need uh, probably intellectual questions tick, but we also need a sense of emotional or somewhat like existential engagement with a person. They need, somebody needs to feel not just that Christianity logically adds up, although, yes, that, but also that Christianity is satisfying to the longings of their hearts and that it works in life. And so they might be asking an intellectual question, but they've also probably, all of us have, got a sort of a, an emotional existential aspect to the question as well as a practical one. Does it work? Does, is it going to be satisfying? And is it true? And the, you know, the Greeks used to do that. They'd talk about logos, ethos, and pathos. They'd say, you know, is the reasonable? Is it ethical? Is it going to work in life? And does it feel right? And if it does, those three, then fine. But if it, if it only does one, that's not going to be enough for people. That's a, <laughs> I'm sorry, sometimes you just get caught mid mid-flow by, I'm sure, other people who... In fact, have I muted my phone? That's probably just as well-checking that I have, yes, okay. Okay. Um, and so some of you know the name Blaise Pascal, the philosopher and mathematician. Pascal's triangle you may have heard of and Pascal's wager. Blaise Pascal said, when you're talking to people about Christianity, you don't want to start by saying these are the reasons why it's true. So it's actually that's only the third thing you do. So the first thing you have to do is you have to show that Christianity is worthy of respect because a lot of people don't even give it the time of day. And he's writing in the 17th century. And I think it's more true now. So you have to show it's worthy of respect. Then you have to make people wish it was true. You have to show people that it's desirable. And only then will you get a hearing if you say, and it is true. And often what happens is people jump to the answer, but before the answer, there's often other things that have to be done first. But having said that, the assumption in these two passages I just mentioned, in Colossians 4 and 1 Peter 3, is that people will ask questions and that it's important to have answers. So, on your table's... I'd like you to come up with the five most common or difficult ones, and you can prioritise commonest or difficult ones as much, as, whichever way you like. You could say this one's really obscure, but I want to know what the answer is anyway. Or you could say these are the five that always come up. And obviously, you'll come with different backgrounds. And imagine our tables are pretty diverse, and so we might get really different answers from each other according to age and stage and culture and all sorts. But that would be really helpful just to know what are the five big ones, and then and it's important that you actually write them down and remember what they are, assuming someone on the table has got a pen or a phone or something, because we're going to keep going back to them as we go through the material, and then at the end of the evening we'll pick up anything that's not been covered. Is that okay? So what are the five big objections or questions about Christianity that you encounter, and it could be yours or that of close friends, I don't mind which, but come up with five as a table, and you'll have at least five minutes, if not slightly more, to talk about that so you've got plenty of time. <laughs> so did you get anywhere? Did you go, have you got, how many people have got five? You've got a clear five. You've agreed on your five. How many people say we've got 15 and we had a big argument about it? Okay, good. Okay, so I'm gonna do a little, a, little bit of spot, a little bit of spot checking. If you've been to one of these seminar evenings before, you'll know I'm a fan of the clapometer, because I reckon it's a good way of getting the opinion of a whole room full of people instantly. So, to, for no particular reason, this table here. Could you give us what you thought your number one was? And then, when I've repeated it, you guys all clap if you got it as well. What was your what was your top one? Why yeah. why, 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 why why is there suffering? <laughs> yes, good. Thank. you. Oh, that's excellent. I'm glad. Okay. So, um, number one. Other than that one, number one from this table here. What's the board? The board, say, say, Sorry. Does God exist? Is that, okay, anybody get that one? Okay, good, okay. Um, table of young people at the back. Um, I just say, can God create a rock so heavy that you can't it up How many people, how many people got the, can God create a rock so heavy? Hey, uh, just to clarify, clapometers don't include clapping your own question. That is not cool, you can't do that. I am reading the room saying that 98% of the clapping for that question came from you guys. Um, C.S. Lewis has a great answer to that. You may have come across it before. He said that the reason why, you can't, the reason why that, sense, that uh, question doesn't have a good answer is not because God can't do something, but because nonsense remains nonsense even when you, even when you talk about God. And, So one of you guys got the C.S. Lewis answer? Was that what is that whooping that was about? Or was that... You, well, you asked the question and they're all laughing at you. Okay. It's a good philosophy question, but it's, it's just a good exposing a sort of... When you, when you put something illogical and then say God cannot, you're not limiting the power of God at all. You're just expressing a logical reality, aren't you? Um, okay. But table right over in the far corner reaches of the room. Um, what was your number one question? Is there life after death? Oh, wow. A lot of you. So a lot of the same questions. Okay, good. This is good. So the fact that there is so much overlap between the questions is a good thing. Okay, It's not. It's a good thing because it means probably that the people that you know because of where you live. And by the way, this would be a different set of questions if you lived in. I've done this in Istanbul. And it's fascinating because in Istanbul, they have to change week one of the alpha course. Most of us would probably know of the alpha course. Um, you know, is Christianity boring, untrue, and irrelevant? And they have to completely change week one, because that's not the question people in Istanbul have about the gospel. So they have to change it to, is it, um, is it colonialist, is it Western, and is it something else? And because they know that that's the question people there are asking. And the fact, that it might be your question too, by the way, but if the, if the fact is that the, if the questions are actually fairly common, you don't have to memorize loads and loads of clutter because you know the same few things are always going to come up. And suffering is always going to get the biggest clap. And then you know, as a rough guess, what the other next five will be. So that's a good exercise to get us started. And as I said, we will go back to those questions and do some, I was going to say, group work on them through a a couple of different perspectives. If you have a Bible, and I know that sounds shocking in a church kind of based meeting, but some of us are going, what on earth is that? Um, If you have a Bible... Very briefly, just six verses from Luke chapter 10. So if you can turn to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And no, this is not going to provide you with a sudden answer to the one about the rock you can't lift. Um, But it's a good place to start when thinking about uh, the way in which Jesus engaged with these things. If you like, the the main um, premise of our Reach series as a church that we've been going through on the Sundays is that, Learning from Jesus is a good thing to do for a Christian, and if you want to know how to share the gospel, looking at how Jesus did it is a good thing to do. So we're going to just look at one very little story. You will, if you have any Christian background at all, you will probably know it, because it's the introduction, if you like, to the story of the Good Samaritan, which is one of the most famous stories ever told by anyone. But you might not have noticed what Jesus does in his introductory discussion with this guy who asks him a difficult question. So Jesus is modeling for us how to engage with a difficult question. And he does three things in his three statements, or his three responses to the guy. Okay, So see if you can pick out what they are. Luke, 20, Luke 10, 25 to 30. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, that's Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now we know that this guy is trying to test Jesus. He's not just asking an open-ended question. He's trying to find find an area to sort of expose him or something. That's what Luke's telling us. So notice Jesus' first response. He said to him, what is written in the law, how do you read it? That's the first thing he does. It's an interesting response, isn't it? You could have just said, oh, here's what you do. You believe in me. End of conversation. But he doesn't do that. He says, what's written in the law, how do you read it? just worth reflecting on what he's doing there and why. And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. It's a good answer, right? And then Jesus, second thing Jesus said, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. So second response seems to be like, I asked you a question and and then you told me what you thought and now I'm just agreeing with you, which is interesting. But he... The lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Which sets us up for this wonderful story that Jesus tells. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, notice that in the two, the two contexts in which he's asked a question, he doesn't answer the question in either case. Or at least he, he, he kind of does, but he does it in a very interesting way. He doesn't just give a direct answer. When the guy says, and who is my neighbor? Jesus could have just said, Everybody. He doesn't do that. He tells them this elaborate story, which is you know, still known by a great many people in this city who have no interest in Jesus at all, but they still know that story. And when he's initially asked the question, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, what do you think? How do you read the law? And he speaks three times in that little exchange, and he does three things with those three responses. The first thing he does is he asks a question, and then the guy says, here's my answer. And then he provides what I'm calling an affirmation or a point of agreement. Right? He says, "This is. I agree with you. You're right. Do this and you'll live. And then he tells a story. And I think those three things to do when, are, when people come with good questions and they are usually, I'm looking at the group at the back again, but usually very good, meaningful searching questions. Like, and sometimes they're trying to trick you, aren't they? Sometimes they are trying to catch you out. And, but, but often they're, not, they're often not coming with a trick often. They're coming with genuine questions that you share. It's good to think through, okay, so the way Jesus responded to that sort of inquiry was to ask questions, to find points of affirmation or agreement, and to tell stories. And we're going to use that as a way of looking at some of the issues we've talked about already that have already come up. Okay, So I want to look at each one of them, and then what we'll do is I'll introduce what I mean by questions and how we do that, and then we'll do The exercise on our table is going, what questions can be asked of the five things you've got on your list? Okay, so if you've got fifteen, I'm afraid you're gonna just have to work harder than everyone else to do these other bits of exercise. Okay? But the first thing Jesus does is to ask a question. Someone comes to you with a question, and if you know this is a Jewish rabbinic tradition, rabbis would do this a lot, they would immediately ask a question back to try and because often you have to, because you're trying to expose what's really going on. You're trying to find out for you and for them. Sometimes people ask questions and they don't themselves necessarily know what it, is they're on, what it is they're trying to get to, and you certainly don't know. So it's very good to ask a question. And that's what he does. What is written in the law? How do you read it? So questions as a response are very helpful because the, um, questions do several things, and they're really useful. The questions clarify, right? Someone asks you a question, and you respond with a question, it will clarify what they mean, or it should do. Um, I had a... Gr- <laughs> You know, the big question you have is, why does God allow suffering? And that's always the biggest, you know, the clapometer, probably everywhere in the world, actually. And it's the one that the Bible, in, in very helpfully, probably engages with the most. Um, and the, by the way, the answer, when it comes, you're not going to like it. But, um, but it's, it's worth knowing that that's a common question. And I got this question, and I was being live interviewed on a radio station in Toronto, promoting a book I wrote about 10 years ago. And it's this sort of, general listenership obviously Christians but plenty of other people listening in and there was this guy and and they say right okay questions and answers with this British pastor who's written a book and it wasn't a book about suffering so I wasn't particularly anticipating the first question to be why does God allow terrible things to happen like why does God allow children to die now at that point if, you, if I hadn't known that the thing you've got to do first is to try and ask the question, what kind of, what's the context of that? What kind of suffering are you talking about? What do you, what's been your experience of that? As it turns out, this guy, who I'm having this live conversation on the radio with an audience of however many thousand people, it turns out he has himself lost a child recently. And so this is the furthest thing imaginable from a theoretical question for him. Like this is the opposite of that. This is this is the moment we're giving you. Well, do you know what? There's a book in the Bible about that, Jim, and it goes like this. And you think that's not? It might be true, but it's not helpful at all. So you've got to ask the question: What kind? Of, a question like, "What kind of suffering do you mean?" Give, what? Where are you? Where are you coming from with that question? And it depends on the way they've asked it as to wh- whether you feel freedom to ask that. But often saying, "What, what kind of suffering do you mean?" What's, what, give me an, Give me a for instance, because it will clarify why they're asking. And so sometimes people do, you say, why does God allow people to die? You need to know whether, for instance, it's because they've just seen something on the news, which has prompted them to think, you know, there's just been a, like, the, you know, every few years there is a terrible, terrible earthquake, which draws the attention of the world to the fact that lots and lots of people have just died, right? And there was, a few years ago, it was Haiti. Do you remember the tsunami that there was in Asia? I mean, you'll remember these stories if you're obviously old enough, but there were, every few years, something that makes everybody go, why, how could God allow this? But you need to know if the person's asking because they've just seen the news or if they've just experienced bereavement themselves or if they're actually doing it more in a kind of this is a difficult question sort of sense. So asking a question can clarify that and it can be very helpful. The second thing questions do and they're helpful is that questions draw out the person to talk more about what they think. Which is a really important thing to do. It's a Dale Carnegie thing, how to win friends and influence people. You actually want to ask people questions partly because you're interested in what they think. And the problem is, answers, if they're good ones, usually take a bit longer than a good question. Um, by the way, the exception that proves the rule is, why does God allow suffering? Because the answer to that question is even shorter than the question. Okay? Which we, some of you know what it is, but you come back to, we'll come back to it in a moment. But the, if, if usually, if somebody asks you a question, how can you possibly, you know, whatever it might be, how can you possibly believe that two people who love each other shouldn't be able to get married, whoever, whatever sex they are? it probably takes more time to answer that question than to ask it. And so if you simply go into answer, every time someone says, here's a question, you go, here's my answer. Even if you're quite good at it, the answer might take two minutes, which means that after a ten-minute conversation, you've, they've been speaking for ten seconds and you've been speaking for ten minutes. So actually answering people with a question could help draw out that person to talk about it. Why are you, what do you think? Why, where is this coming from? What's your backstory here? Have you seen that question become an issue in your own life? And if so, where and how? And questions can also be used to challenge assumptions in the question, which is one, another reason I find them quite, quite useful. Um, I, some of you heard me, and I'll probably tell this story, because it makes me laugh as an example of it, but some of you know that it, this happened to me, but where a, a few years ago, a couple of teenage girls came to visit the church I was in in Eastbourne, they're about 15. And they asked exactly the question I've just given. How how can you possibly believe that two people who love each other can't get married? Which, you know, orthodox Christian position, if you are are a man and a woman and you're not married to anybody else and you're not blood-related and you're going to be prepared to make a commitment for life, then yes, you can. But if you're any other category of person, then you can't. And that's always been the Christian position. And I knew that they wouldn't have asked it ten years previously, but I knew they were asking it now. But I just thought this would be a fun question. So instead of saying, oh, well, here's why it's what Christians have always believed, they said, why do you believe two people who love each other can't get married? And I said, why two? Why not three? And, and, it, and, it, it not, and it sounds like a trick, but it wasn't. Because actually, although initially, like, what, are you saying that you're three? I said, well, why not three? Why not five? Why can't I be married to my wife, and she's married to her sister, and she's married to her? Like, why not? And the reason I did it is because actually it's trying to reveal something which is that behind that question there's an assumption that it must be two and I'm trying to go where did you get that because most human societies got that from the fact that it takes two people to make a baby but you presumably don't accept that as the criterion for doing it anymore so what is your criterion why do you think that where does it come from and then I said slightly cheekily you're very polygamophobic um (laughs) which was like but but I was doing it and it was you had a good relationship by then. It was quite a fun conversation. But the point is, you use a question partly to challenge. And Jesus is sort of doing that here a bit, isn't he? He's like, come on, so what do you think? Why do you? Oh, okay, well, you know, he's, and he does that a lot in the Gospels, asking good questions to help challenge. Um, and there can be many, many other examples. So what I'd like to do now is just to think: what kinds of questions? Assuming that you, you're not hearing the questions on your list for the first time tonight. But probably all of you have heard and thought about these questions before. What Can you give an example of a question for each of the five issues that you think that might work as a question in response? Right, Not as a gotcha. We're not trying to catch people out here. We're trying to serve people and love people. But actually, in that situation, this question would be helpful. In that situation, this one might be. Okay, Do you understand what I'm asking? Like, so you've got five challenges. Now, for each one of those five, can you come up as a table with a question? You might want to do that all together or split into pairs to work on one each or whatever. But just go, get, again, give yourself five minutes on that. Try and come up with a question for each one. Okay. How are you getting on? Um, how many people here have now got questions? To a few more minutes, these guys. Are how many people have got, answer, or have got a question to respond to all five? So you've already got a working question for all five. How many people have got four? Three, two, one, what on earth has everybody else been doing, is what I'm finding myself wanting to ask. So most people have got none. Or most people just don't do the hands-up game. Yeah, okay. I should go back to clapometers, that's what the audience research is telling me here. Okay. Okay. The, or you might be going, I've got a question, but I'm not sure it's the best one, and I don't want him to ask my table what we came up with. That might be the, that might be the reason. Um, so we will, uh, we will come back, and we will see where we are towards the end. But it, it's a, I, I encourage you to think that one through as a good discipline, if only because there are normally, you'd only need about ten. In fact, I'd say often you'd only need about five. Like, there are about five things that always come up, and it's good to have something that you're aware of as a good way of engaging even you don't have to in that sense you don't have to memorize whole answers like long section, pages of stuff it can be helpful just simply to go oh, well this is a good follow-up question and so for me what kind of suffering do you mean is a good example um of that sort of question um so you did well that you mean you got that <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, to be fair, that's using your initiative. I uh, don't be fair, yeah, I should I should concede that. Okay. So Jesus the first thing he did was to ask a question. The second thing he did, do you remember I said he affirmed the guy or he agreed with him, he found a point of agreement or an affirmation. Okay? So he said, You are right, do this and you will live. He found a common point. Now I'm not going to try and build a whole doctrine out of that, but what you'll notice is if you see the way that the apostles preach the gospel in the book of Acts, they do that a lot. Even with people who are believing complete nonsense. So you find Paul and Barnabas do it in Acts 14, and they basically, their point of agreement with the local people who are trying to offer sacrifices to them, thinking that they are divine, which for Jewish guys is not a good, that's not a good thing, right? Say, so we believe you are God, ah, and they run away screaming. But instead, they find something to agree on, even if it's basically, yeah, the gods have provided you, God has provided you with rain. You know, that's basically the point of agreement, As you think that's a bit... Bit, bit of a poor substitute for an appointment of agreement. But they go, you've got to find something here to affirm that these people do believe, because no one's believing everything. That something that's completely wrong. Paul does it in Acts 17. He said, your poets were right when they said, in him we live and move and have our being. Even though what they mean by God and what they mean by being is totally different from a Jewish Christian like Paul, I want to agree with you. I think you're right about this and maybe wrong about something else. And there will always be, probably... In fact, no, I will, I will state it even more strongly. There will always be some truth in an objection to Christianity. So it's actually good to just think, what is the truth behind that objection? Okay. So don't rush to highlight differences. And often a question, particularly if it's a little bit prickly or host, can feel a bit hostile, you can get very defensive straight away. Go, I must defend. I must show why I'm right and you're wrong. Because emotionally you're almost going, I'm doing this on behalf of my own faith. You're not really doing it to serve them. You're doing it because you want to make yourself feel like there is an answer. And so at that point, it can be good to think, okay, so what's true about that objection? Okay? So if you take a, an issue, obviously a big issue, take an issue like slavery, or the, the extent to which Christianity is a white man's religion, or whatever it may be, you go, there is. I could rush to defend Christianity on that point. right? I could say, well, the thing is, slavery has been common in every single culture until basically a Christian-led abolition, which is... Is actually true, but that's not probably the best way to start because it makes it sound like I'm saying this is not a problem. And actually what I want to affirm is there is a lot in the question that is true, which is that race-based slavery. Yes, of course, slavery is common to almost all cultures until Christianity, but race-based chattel slavery is pretty much unique to modern, if you like, 17th, 18th, 19th, and 20th century Europeans who largely profess Christianity. That's true. So if I say, oh, no, no, slavery really you know, is not really like that, because actually Christians abolished slavery and all societies had slavery, that might be true, but it's, it's not initially the best place to start because it makes it look like you're going, oh, it's not really a problem. So what you want to do is, that often that one usually depends on the context, obviously, but you probably want to affirm a large part of what the person's asking, which is this is a huge stain on the Christian faith. It's a huge problem, and it's a particularly a huge problem for people who look like me, but it's a huge problem for everybody who's a Christian to some degree, because this is something that people were blind enough to for so long that it does raise questions about the moral integrity of a lot of the people who have preached and handed down the Christian message. And it's good to accept that and to affirm it. Now, I don't think that's enough to say, for a moment to say, therefore Jesus didn't rise from the dead, or therefore the gospel isn't fundamentally anti. Of course I think those things are true, but... As a starting point, that's probably not the best way to go about it. You want to affirm something, and often there's a lot to affirm in a question like that. The same would be true of something like sexuality, where you go, now, oh, what, what am I wanting to affirm there? And In fact, with these young teenage girls, in some ways, I am actually wanting to affirm the fact that marriage is between two people. I'm agreeing with them about that. I disagree with them about what kinds of two people, but I agree with them that it is, and I'm trying to help them to think about why. But even deeper than that, I could say, yeah, on the issue of sexuality, the church has been inconsistent in which sexual sins we have decided to make a bigger deal of than others. There are some things where we've gone, oh, that's not really an issue, which the Bible speaks very strongly about, and others where we go, that is a big issue. And that's not always been consistent. And we haven't always been loving and gracious in the way we have communicated on these things and the way we have thought about the way you should make laws or a just society or whatever. So there might be things like, in, in anything, there will probably be areas where I can agree, where I can affirm something really good in the question. The best one, of course, is the problem of suffering, because the problem of suffering is the problem that means Christianity is necessary. If there wasn't a problem of suffering, you don't need a gospel. I, I, really, I really believe that. If, you didn't, if there wasn't a problem of evil, people wouldn't believe they needed a gospel. It's only because there is sin and death in the world, which is what suffering is, that people even aware that they need Jesus. So that, for me, is a huge plus. I want to affirm almost all of it. The only bit I don't affirm is that the existence of suffering makes the existence of God impossible. But everything else, I want to go yes, yes, yeah, totally agree. And by the way, I said I'd give you the short answer. You know, the answer to the problem of suffering that's shorter than the question. Why does a, why does God allow suffering? Is five words, and the answer is we don't know. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, and, and I, I would, I, that's a very short answer, but I could talk about that for hours. Why that? I think that's the answer you'd get from the Book of Job. I think that's the answer you get from the Psalms, the Book of the Bible. You you might well say I don't think that rules out God. I don't think that means God doesn't exist. But if you try and answer that question with anything really other than I don't know and I, ultimately I just I feel the same question as you then you end up in big trouble because your answer will probably be right for some kinds of suffering and not for lots of others yeah and so generally that is where I somebody says to me why does God allow suffering I'm going to go I don't know before anything else so but those will be some examples but again now on your tables could you think through what look at your look at your five right you hopefully you've got a question or a sort of working attempt at a question or nothing at all, depending on which table you're on. Um, but but now move across, and I think what affirmation can I make, right, to the statement, to the question that's being asked here. Assuming the question is a now. I, I, by the way, I know this doesn't quite work for for questions which aren't objections. So if the if the question is does God exist, I understand that's too open ended. Um, that's not an objection really. That's a person genuinely asking because that one's in some ways quite easy. Yes. I mean, the question, probably a harder question underneath it is, do you have any evidence at all that God exists? Might be a, and at that point, what affirmation can you make? What could you say, do you know what, I agree with you about that. Or I'm going, to, I'm going to admit that this is true before going on to explain why I think another answer is better. Okay, so an affirmation for each one of your five. Again, you've got another five minutes to do that. Have a crack. Okay. You will not have done all five, I suspect, in that gap of time. You, you got one? Anybody got more than one? Anybody got more than one? How many? Three. Four. Wowzers. Okay, the table with the most carols on it is also the table that ends up with four answers. That's excellent. So it's just good to think that through, right? And again, I'm not sending your homework here, but it's worth processing. What? Okay, what about that question is valid? What about that question can I agree with as a Christian? So the first thing Jesus did was to ask a question. What's written in the law? How do you understand it? Second thing is to affirm something, which is you have answered correctly. If you do this, you'll live. And then the third thing he does when you're most expecting him to go, now here's the answer, is he tells a story. So he's him, and obviously I'm not suggesting any of you are going to be able, me are going to be able to ad-lib something as brilliant as the parable of the Good Samaritan off the cuff. But it is worth thinking through, are there stories, either historical, actual things that have happened, or perhaps parables like the one Jesus tells, or even contemporary illustrations from pop culture that can shed a lot of light on these issues? So I'll give a few examples of ones which I like, which touch in on various of the issues that might be on your lists. Effectively what stories do, of course, is they reorient your thinking. They, they they take you out of the question for a moment and make you think about things from another angle, and then they put you back in with the issue you started with, and you go, Oh, that's another way of looking at that thing. So on science, right? So sometimes people come at you with scientific questions and the temptation to respond in a very how many people had a scientific e does science get in the way of God kind of question? Clapometer? Oh, quite a lot. Okay. So I find some some of the things that are going on in science actually they have very good answers with stories, so uh, I call, I, a story I really enjoy telling because it's such a fun story, is the story of you know Galileo. If you know the idea, you know the, basically the church has always opposed science because Galileo realised that actually the Earth was going around the Sun and the Sun wasn't going around the Earth, and he wrote about it and the Catholic Church basically locked him up and banned all his writings. That's the that's the story people believe, but actually when he tell what actually happened, it's a much more interesting and much more fun story, because it's basically this sort of titanic clash of egos between these two men, the Pope and Galileo, who had been friends, and the Pope had been a patron of Galileo, as in which in the in early modern period was a really important way of funding someone's work, and Galileo was saying, I think that, this is, that Copernicus is right about this, and actually the Catholic Church was saying, you know, you may well be right, you can definitely publish that. At the moment, though, your model is unproven. So I think you should include, as a preface, we haven't yet got a model that works here, and we don't actually know, this is not signed, which is true, by the way. Galileo's model was wrong in almost every respect, and he thought Kepler was an idiot because Kepler said that the tides were caused by the moon, and the man said, oh, Kepler believes in the occult because he thinks it's down to the moon. So Galileo was wrong about a lot of the big details you and I know, but the Pope said you've got to put in a disclaimer to the effect that your model doesn't work and you might be wrong. And Galileo does, but he does it in the mouth of an incredibly stupid buffoon-like character who he creates, and basically casts the Pope as this idiot in the introduction, and calls him Simplicio, which even if you don't speak Latin is obvious for simpleton. And he puts that in the in the frontispiece of the book, and the Pope is very offended, and takes umbrage and bans the guy. And of course, it's still on the, I think it was still on the list of banned books until 1950s or 60s. So it's a, it's a really it's a fun story that actually shows you, yeah, there are two egotistical men who were both wrong. There was a scientist guy and a Christian guy, but actually they were both Christian and both scientists. And one of them turned out to be closer to right, but he was still kind of wrong. And that's often what's going on in the debate. It's a story that just makes you think, oh, I didn't know that. So that's an interesting perspective on the issue. I like parables. Um, parables can be good for... Uh, a good parable to use, on again, on science, of God creating the world. There's a parable com- that John Leslie... The Canadian philosopher uses, he says, you've got to imagine that the world has been, do you think the world has been designed, or you think the world has been a of chance, or you think there's millions and millions of universes out there, and we're just in the one where life is possible. And he says, you've got to imagine that a guy has been sentenced to death by firing squad. And he hears them, ready, aim, fire. And he hears a bang, and nothing happens. And a few minutes later, he eventually plucks up the courage to take off his blindfold and looks around, and there's nobody there. And he might conclude at that point, well, just lucky for me, really, they all missed. Just chance. I'll go off for a beer. But he probably wouldn't do that. Or he might conclude, well, of course, there are millions and millions of executions that have happened in history, and I just happen to have been the lucky recipient of the one where everybody missed. Offer a beer. Or he might conclude, and probably would conclude, maybe there is some kind of design agency behind this process. Maybe everybody's Bribed or drunk or something and that parable just opens up the question like you might well believe that something this ordered exists by chance but it's worth considering whether or not you would believe that of any other cosmic coincidence and so parables can be helpful as even sometimes good contemporary stories can use the, the one i often use on science is the um, inside cover of the god delusion where douglas adams says isn't it enough to see that a garden is beautiful without believing there are fairies at the bottom of it and of course, the answer to that is, yeah. You, you, a beautiful garden doesn't make you believe in fairies, but it makes you believe in gardeners. You know, it, it's like it's one of those massive own goal comments that makes you go, okay, that story is just quite illuminating because you say there are, you are acknowledging that this world is not just a wasteland; it is ordered in some way with a purpose, and that actually points to the Christian answer and not to the atheist one or whatever. So sometimes you can use stories like that. You, with suffering, of course. Much human literature is written on the problem of suffering, and a lot of it is very Christian in flavor. Um, Dostoevsky and Solzhenitsyn, some of these sort of great writers, if you read these guys or you read about these guys, they write huge books which are ultimately so powerfully searching on the issue of evil. And often, what they conclude is that uh, Solzhenitsyn's famous line is like the line between good and evil goes through the middle of every human heart. That, that's ultimately what we've come to know. about. You know, you win a Nobel Prize for literature, and you've been to the gulag, and you've fought in the Red Army under Stalin, and you've been exiled from your country. I think you've earned the right to say what you think is responsible for evil. And he returns to Russia in the 80s and says, yeah, in the end, we'd love to think that evil was those people, and we're fine, but actually, this is where the line is. And if that's where the line is, then I can't, I can't get rid of evil without getting rid of me. And that's not the only answer but it's part of the answer. It's a helpful story that illuminates that issue. I use the much sillier version of David Mitchell and Robert Webb pretending to be Nazi concentration camp guards in the Mitchell and Webb look and they're just doing a little skit on it where they're looking out and uh, scanning the, the, the sort of horizon for, these, for their enemies, and they're pretending to, they're Nazis, they're dressed as Nazis with skulls on their caps. And David Mitchell starts going, Why have we got skulls on our caps? And it's a really funny skit in which they're both debating, Well, of course, skulls you know, might be a good thing. And it's like, No, oh, come on, skulls make you think of pirates and beheadings and poison. And the guy goes, Pirates are fun. Yeah, yeah, I didn't say we weren't fun, but pirates are the baddies anyway, aren't they? We know that we might be the bad guys here. And the whole point of the skit is everybody thinks they're the goodies, even. Nazi concentration camp guards thought they were doing what was good. Actually, what the full story does, what the biblical story does, is it makes me go, am I the baddie? And the Jason Bourne, you've seen the Bourne movies? The end, of the end of the Bourne movies where Jason Bourne, sorry to spoil it, shut your ears if you want, but Jason Bourne effectively is, is revealed at the end of the Bourne ultimatum that it wasn't that the, this kind of massive conspiracy came to try and get him, to trap him, it's that He volunteered. And he said, you volunteered for this, David. You volunteered. You wanted to be recruited to do all of these things, and you have forgotten about it. And it's like, that's what the Christian story does. It makes us go, so hang on, are you saying that I have voluntarily participated in a system of evil that is the thing that I'm objecting to? So there's a lot of stories that can help on issues like that with suffering. And then, of course, the big ones are the biblical stories. Where you say, this, this is why we did a series on it last year, of course. The Exodus story is the best biblical answer to the problem of slavery. Because, not because it answers all of the questions, but because it frames God's deliverance in the context of a historical liberation of a particular people. And then says, that's the way in which Jesus rescues you. And that is so central to the biblical story that it ought to explode any claim of human beings to practice slavery in the way that they have since then. And so it's a story that, in a sense, because it's biblical, you go, this is actually at the center of the biblical account. And that makes it a very powerful story and using in the discussion. Similarly, if you're talking about sexuality, you probably don't want to just get into, what does this verse here mean? You have to do that. You say, this story begins, the the biblical story begins and ends, begins with a betrayal of a marriage and ends with a wedding. Actually, human sexuality is not grounded in, what about this particular verse, as much as it is grounded in the fact that the Bible story begins with God and people mirrored and imaged in man and woman And that relationship breaks down, and then that relationship breaks down, and God and Israel, God remains faithful, and Israel wanders off and sleeps with other gods all the way through the Bible. Christ comes and dies for the church and brings them back together again, and then the the Bible ends with a wedding in which heaven and earth become married, Jesus and the church become married, and of course male and female is kind of completed in that. And that sort of story is really important for people to see. You don't have the time to tell all of these things every time the question comes up, but it's good to know that there are stories which can help us in some of these issues. So again, this one, again, just five more minutes, and then what we'll do is we'll take some questions of, for the last 20 minutes. But five minutes again on your tables. Have you found, can you think of, have you just heard, stories which you think are illuminating or helpful when it comes to the five questions that you wrote down at the start? So the ideal is at the end of this, you end up with five Challenges to Christianity and then a question for each an affirmation for each and a story for each. That would be great I don't think anyone's gonna quite get all of them. That's fine But if you do you can shout bingo or words to that effect. Okay, so five minutes on any stories Okay How many of you how many people have got? Three or more like stories or types of stories that work well as responses anybody with three Three, anybody three? Anybody two? Anybody one? Yes, excellent, thank you. You have begun and ended the evening with brilliance. I'm so pleased. Um, it might be some of you have got five and you're just, you're your sources said, I didn't even need to come tonight, I've already got loads, which is great. Um, in some ways, the purpose of doing that is to help us just think through, okay, because the thing is, you will know much better than me or anybody who is a, anybody who does this kind of thing a lot, you will know much better than I will what kind of thing that you would be likely to say were somebody to ask you. you. It's like you can't wear someone else's clothes. You've got to say things in a way that would be true to who you are. So some, there's some, have you ever done that where you come out with an answer? And you think, I feel like I'm talking like someone else from whom I heard this. And then they ask you another a follow-up question. You go, oh no, I don't know. I didn't memorize that bit. And it all unravels. Has that happened? I'm hit guessing from the laughter that it might have. So you've going to have a way of doing it that is true to who you are. But it's worth thinking through under those, if I can call them even headings, just, all right, is there a question, an affirmation, a story that might help me here? Okay, So there is some good news. Two bits of good news, and then we'll take questions. Okay, The first is that within a given culture, the same few questions usually come up. And that helps for a number of reasons, because it means that if you think about the answers beforehand... Uh, you are kind of ready for it. So I very rarely hear a question now where I think, gosh, I've never heard that, just because you spend a lot of time talking to people about their objections. So when someone says something, you usually you have heard it before, and you've probably thought about it before. It also means that other churches and or writers and or pastors and or just ordinary people have thought about the issue, and you can draw on their wisdom for help. So the modern world, with all of its technology, makes there more questions, but it also gives you far easier access to answers. So if you just put up the next, put up that page, this is a, a suge- I'd I use the. I'm trying to use the chili, rack, chili system, right? So you know a curry will come with one, two, or three chilies, right? So I'm getting, there are aren't, there are books at different levels of chilies. Okay, portals. The Jude Three project I put up first because I don't. You, you Faria, can you just do that just so everyone can see? Okay, so three, the G 3 project, is, which is about you know defend, effectively defending the faith, is what J3 is about, but it's particularly helpful in our context. Whether you are black, white, some other colour, but it's particularly helpful because it's a black apologetics, effectively, and it's done brilliantly. It's done by those people of colour. It's done in order to help defend the faith against the kind of objections you're more likely to find, and one of the realities of privilege being what it is, is that most resources by most Christian people are written by people who have the power and the time and the money to do it, which means that often minorities have not been dominant in apologetics, and the good thing about the Jude 3 project is, of course, they are. That's the whole point. Bethinking.org, which is a uh, UCCF, uh, the effectively the Un- Un- University's Combined Christian Fellowship movement, have a website of apologetics. And what they do is they do a bit like the Chili's, really. They go basic, intermediate, advanced articles on every conceivable question you could have. And a lot of them are excellent. And reasonablefaith.org, if you come across William Lane Craig and his ministry, you may well have come across uh, some of that stuff. And so those are three good, they're portals, they're not one-off articles, they are portals with fountains of resources, okay, so I commend them to you. Um, One, chilly Books, obviously some of you, many of you being in the church will know my book, If God Then What, which we preached through a couple of years back. That's quite, for people who want to read and wrestle with apologetics, that's fairly basic-ish, I think, and Tom Wright, Simply Christian, and obviously C.S. Lewis. It feels very silly to put myself on the same page as C.S. Lewis, but anyway, you know, but Mere Christianity still, 60 years later, is still a fantastic way of, for a lot of people, will be a very helpful introduction. Two chilly books, Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, and his book, Making Sense of God, which is pitched at people who, The Reason for God is pitched at people with objections, and it's some of the best answers you will ever find to things questions like, um, how can a loving God send people to hell, or has science disproved God, or what about suffering? Keller is a beast. He's an amazing man, really, and a, a very, very good communicator on these issues. Um, but he's also written a book called Making Sense of God, which is for people who don't even care about Christianity, and who are going, I'm not even asking those questions, this is just a waste of my time. And Making Sense of God, for some of us, particularly with, if you've got a, quite a... You know, often young secular group of friends rather than post-Christian group of friends, you might find that the lower of the the second of those books is actually more helpful. Um, And Francis Spufford's book, Unapologetic, that one comes with various caveats, like it's full of swearing and affirms all kinds of things that I wouldn't affirm in terms of doctrine. But it is an extraordinary book. From one perspective, for a certain type of person, it will be incredibly helpful at presenting Jesus in a way that they will never have heard him presented before. But I don't. I'm not signing off on everything in it. Um, you know, you'll know that as soon as you start reading it. And then three chilies, which will probably not be for honest for most of us, uh, but David Bentley Hart is a uh, an, you know, his sort of superb writer and theologian. His book, Atheist Delusions, um, and his book, The Experience of God, which is based on being, consciousness, and bliss, and saying basically all religious experience really summed up under those three words, the being of God, consciousness, The fact that we ha- the fact that we are conscious is a huge thing to explain and the fact that we believe in bliss. And those three things actually point to an experience of God in all of us, and Charles Taylor's massive book, A Secular Age, which is more like a history of how we came to be secular, and it isn't because we figured out that science explained everything. It's totally different than that. It's actually a much more creative project. Those three chili books are honestly like, you know, take them at your peril, uh, probably. F- and for most of us are going, that would take me a year to read it. Um, so I'm not suggesting that you give all of these out willy-nilly, but they Willy nilly, chilly, it's all coming together and the, the rhyming up here. Um, but anyway, so the good news is that lots of people have thought about these things before. And I've just used their modern examples. Just the other day, I had a, st- a tough question coming in from somebody. Um, and I was, I, But I go to Augustine whenever I can because I think sometimes apologetics from someone who's been dead for 1600 years and lived in North Africa actually helps in a way that modern theologians can't because they just approach the question so differently. But for many of our friends, probably reading people who've been dead for 1,600 years is harder. So that's why I start with modern works. But often the best works, you get once you get into the subject, might be from you know, dead Africans rather than living Americans, or whatever it might be. And the second bit of good news is that often the objections people are making fundamentally don't challenge the center of Christianity, which is that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and rose again on the third day. And, often, and people don't, if you think for a moment, people don't even think they do. So if someone says, I don't know, what about gay marriage? You say, one of the answers you can make at that point is, are you saying that because you disagree with the Christian position on sexuality, that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? Because, now, I'm not saying you're going to use that as your first question, but ultimately, you're going to go, that can't be what you're saying. Because in the end, the central claim of Christianity is that Jesus is alive. And if he's, if he's dead, you don't have to listen to anything he says about anything. If he's alive, you have to listen to everything he says about everything. But you probably you, you, that object, many of the objections don't really hit at the target at center of Christianity at all. They're, kind of not, they're, not a, they're very relevant to people, but they're not very relevant to the central claim of Christianity. And that's kind of good news, because in the end, you're, you're, obviously if you believe God doesn't exist, that's a challenge. But if you believe that something God said isn't what you'd like him to have said, that doesn't mean that Jesus is still dead. It might just mean that you, and you have clashed with God on that question, and that's fine. And we can talk about that, but that's not a reason to disbelieve Christianity. So, there, are some, there is some good news in this as well. But in all of this, we've got to be motivated by love for that person and care for them, rather than just wanting to win an argument to mean that we're right. So, we have two microphones here. We have 15 minutes of roving mics, which is excellent. And I'll try and... Who have we got? Yes. Have you noticed that any time you come to one of these events, no matter where it is in the world, Gary Schmerzinger will always be one of the guys carrying the microphone. There's <laughs> a remarkable... It is a, you, the ubiquity of Gary is like omnipresence. Okay, so you, they switched on, I presume? Okay, uh, yeah. so who has a question? and Donovan, before yeah, before they call, I will answer. I can see it. He's already got his hand up. Okay? Um, okay, so in, in Philippians, uh, Paul says he's in chains. Um, this is whether I'm in chains, defending or confirming the gospel. Is that a direct reference that you can take a, a, an absolute position on something, as in I'm defending this position or confirming and saying, actually, this is an expression of what my faith is. Um, so, so, so in simplicity, defending or confirming? Is, is, is Paul making a point about there's a point where we yes. actually defend our faith? Yes, and I, think I, mean? do, I think he's saying his imprisonment is... Effectively, there is Paul's preaching ministry, which is to say, this is why I think Christianity is true and Jesus is alive, even and Jesus was crucified, which in their word is scandalous, and I'm going to take hits for that, but that's what, I, that's what is true, and that's what I've witnessed. But his, I think he's saying that his imprisonment is, in a sense, also a confirmation of the gospel he's preaching. But he's saying, actually, I am living the kind of life, which is what's happening in Philippians 1, I'm living the kind of life that is imaged on the life Jesus lived for me. And so you are seeing in my imprisonment, not just I believe this is true, but this is the kind of thing Jesus did as well. And so obviously a big part of Philippians in that sense is you as a Christian, if you're going to preach this gospel, you've got to suffer, be prepared to suffer the way Jesus did as well, otherwise it won't add up. And so in that sense, he's saying his suffering in ministry is confirming the gospel that he's defending with his speech. That's how I would understand that. So, okay, next one. Keep, keep your hands up, let's keep, keep dancing around and... What happens, what happens to people who die before they've ever heard about Jesus? Yes. So I personally, even though I have, I think, some fairly strong convictions on a number of levels, one of the first things I do want to do on that one is actually say, do you know what, I'm not God, and I, ultimately, I don't know which I think is important because it can sound like a fudge but I think it's important to admit because I actually don't know there are a whole bunch of people who on diet I don't know if you- I'm not going to go into this with a person who's never heard of Jesus before but if you heard the story of the jellyfish man right so this guy sort of has an- either a near death experience or he rises from death depending on how you read it but he Praise the Lord's Prayer as he's dying in the ambulance, unable to move. Like his eyes literally put the jellyfish poison is killing him from the inside. And he prays the Lord's Prayer and then ends up coming to life and then now tells his story all over the world. The point is you don't even have to believe he came back from death to just affirm, wow, that guy, to all intents and purposes, to the moment of death would have looked like an unbeliever to me. And there he is at the last minute. I've seen people like in pastoral ministry, people I've known pretty well, know their families last minute something converted. So at one level I'm going to go okay I don't know. I think I've got plenty of biblical material to go into with people if they want to if they as a Christian going so what's the what about the missionary imperative and all those things. But if someone who's not a believer is asking me that question, I'm going to say that's actually ultimately that's not my call and I think often that people use that question to distract from the question is well, you have heard of Jesus what are you going to do. And often it's a it can be a deflection. Because people know that Christians like they're like a hot potato. Christians go, oh, I don't know, and then they run away and say, "Ah, do you know what? Let's say I don't know. Right? There's some things in the Bible about it. You know, there's hints and clues, and some would say pretty clear indications in some texts. But but that's not your situation, is it? So I think I want to get. That's often where I want to get to, to try and get to the real issue. But I think if behind it the idea is there are some people who are blissfully innocent living perfect lives without hearing Jesus, that's where I want to challenge it and say, now every time anthropologists discover a new group of people who've had no contact with culture, they are not living blissful, peaceful lives. They often might be living lives quite happy without the rest of the world, but they still do what we would regard as evil things, and often they do things we regard as very evil, to the point that we almost want to help them. So I don't think that the innocent tribesman guy is necessarily a helpful image in our heads, but my main answer is... I'm not... Let's say I don't know, but you have heard. Effectively, that's, that's often the way to go. That can go into all sorts of other questions about hell and that sort of thing as well, which I understand, but I think that with that particular question. Yeah, Lennox. So uh, I'm just going to ground this one in, in, in my own experience. So uh, last week, a uh, friend of mine and George's, um, who's, a, who's a Christian, committed suicide. And uh, wow. w- what, what you've just spoken about... Um, could that extend to, to suicide as well? Because certainly I know that there'll be people, uh, people who are non believers, so to speak, who question the fact that, that she was a Christian and, yeah. and she uh, committed suicide. Yeah. Yes. Man, that's, that was last week? That was last week, yes. Last Horrendous. week, Monday, a week ago today. Wowzers. That's awful. Well, you can feel probably people in the room just with you in that, mate. I'm really, really sorry. Um, I think the, the the easiest the easiest answer, in as much as there is one, is just I often say suicide is not the unforgivable sin, right? So I think is it is it the is it the morally right thing for a Christian to do? No, in my view, I don't think it, I don't think it ever is actually. But is it the thing that if you do it, you're suddenly separated from God, no matter what your circumstances? No, I don't think there's any indication that's true. And actually, in admittedly different kinds of culture and context, we do have examples of it happening in the Bible. Don't we? We have examples of people saying, I don't want to get... I mean, if you could say Samson commits suicide, right? You could say Saul asks for assisted dying. I'm not saying that means you morally ought to. I just think we can see these examples of complicated characters in the bible but whom the spirit of god is with in certain periods of their life who actually end up and, in, and that's not to justify the decision of course and i'm usually people who are grieving someone who's committed suicide don't need any help being told this is not what should have happened they know that what they're looking for is comfort about the next life in that person and at that point i think i'd say this is not the unforgivable sin this is not something that suddenly scrubs or you know justification ultimately is by faith and that that doesn't put that in question in my view but, I, but I, I also I don't think that means for a moment that we should therefore say it's right. The same is true of many things that you and I have done. And so, in that sense, I think you have got a there's a very comforting answer provided in the gospel for someone in that situation. It's obviously different if the person's not a believer. Although I still think a fusion of the two answers I've just given are: I don't know, that's God's call, and suicide is not the unforgivable sin. I think you still can, right, with good conscience, say both of those things to someone. But man, what a, you've had a tough week. Anybody else? Um, in um, answering someone's question you know in painting a picture um in in answer to their question could you would it be okay to you say your life story is relevant to the mm. question asked would it be not all right to answer not only okay it's probably the best can be the best thing you can do because although it's not... People often say you can't argue with a story. It's a slightly unfair comment because, of course, you can. You can say, I'm going to disagree with the way you're interpreting your story. But that is, for Paul, again and again and again, that's what he does, isn't it? In fact, three times, to the point, if you read Acts from beginning to end, you think, why do we keep hearing this story? He does it so many times. Just tells his story of what's happened to him. And that, as you, we all, I think in two weeks' time in our Reach series, we've got a whole message on that, about not just the fact that it's good to do it, but how we do that well... Um, my story personally is not particularly doesn't you know i've got lots of little story but my personal narrative of how i became a believer i've not particularly found to be that helpful because i was brought up in a christian family and it's wonderful as a story of god's faithfulness for christians but not particularly for people who aren't but if you have a story of you know healing or skepticism coming to faith or any number of things you'll often find your story is much the best way of doing that i in some ways take that for granted in what we're saying, in, the, in all of these things, if you have, can, that's the best place to start often. Because um, it's, it's an open invite to talk about what God's done in your life. Okay, next. Okay. Um, how far would you go in correcting some complete misunderstandings or preconceptions which have put a person so far off, if you like, objective truth that you don't know where to start. or you know, yeah. Like the one about the Pope in Galileo. I mean, my first point would be, well, was the Pope a Christian? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, so I think it depends how central it is to the objection, doesn't it? So if you have, if, if there is a discussion that, so for instance, let's go back, I'm sorry to pick on you guys again, but let's go back to our, can God create a rock so big he can't lift it? Engaging with that question ac- uh, and accepting that that's a valid problem is going to give away the farm. I, in the end, I have to. I know. I think I used the word. Look at them. They're all just throwing her under the bus here, pointing at her and laughing at her. But I used the word nonsense in my reply, quoting C.S. Lewis, because I know that I can't give a different response at that point. I have to say that is just a, that question is a confusion of categories, and I think I need to be somehow be able to explain that. Whereas in the case of the, I'm not, I'm not going to. Get into the weeds with Pope uh, with Pope Urban the Eighth and Galileo if I don't need to, and it often t- doesn't come up. But that's the sort of story you might tell if someone's saying, "But there's always been a clash between religion and science." At that point, you know, and just take Galileo for example, because people say that, you know. And at that point, you're going, "This is actually quite a good story to illustrate the point." But I wouldn't make it if I didn't need to, because to be honest, a lot of people never heard of Urban the Eighth, and they don't. They might be a little foggy on who Galileo is and what he said. In which case, the story doesn't really achieve anything. So you got to. It depends on how central the objection is to their particular view of Christianity or whatever. So often, these things are trivial. They're just interesting for me, but they might not serve the person at all. So you have to. You know, ultimately, you're just trying to serve a person and help them find God, aren't you? And if it doesn't help that, then you don't say it. Hello. Um, Hello. Hi. Um. So my friend's mum died of cancer a few days ago. Wow. And um, she was such a nice woman. Like she was so kind and stuff. And I struggle with the fact that God would take away a life like that when they're so. I know this might sound bad, but there's so much sinful. Like people in jail that commit suicide and stuff. Yeah. Not commit suicide. Sorry, that's so wrong. Um, commit horrible crimes. Yeah. And the fact that she he's just like taken a soul so beautiful yeah. off this planet. It just doesn't. I just can't no. understand why he would do that. No. And honestly me neither like and and i th- i think it can sound like a bad answer but i think it's the best answer i have which is that as if you read the bible almost any book of the bible will will affirm what you've just said It will say i don't understand why this happens i don't i don't i know i know a very few thing very few things about suffering right i know that i cannot explain it and i hate it right i hate cancer I hate suicide. I hate evil. I hate child abuse. I hate all of the things that people do that have caused. But every single one of us in this room has experienced a varying measure of that. And I hate it all. And Jesus hates it all. And he came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. And for whatever reason, the way that he's done that has been not by just wiping out. In fact, I could guess he's not done it by wiping out all evil deeds instantaneously, which he could have done, My guess is the reason he's done that is because if he had, he would have to wipe out me and you and everybody in here and everybody else because there's no one who's never done anything. And in fact, in a world in which God destroys all the child abusers, then the murderers are the worst people in the world. And then he wipes out all the murderers and then the so-and-sos and and the burglars and the people who speed, and ultimately I am the worst person in the world. I'm Hitler in some version of that world. So I I can guess that he maybe didn't wipe everybody out because he said, I love people, I I want them to change, I want them to find me and change. But ultimately, to say, I don't understand why this is like this. I hate it. This world shouldn't be like this. The gospel goes, yes, you're right. That's exactly what what God's saying. That's what I think too. And in that sense, you say, well, all I know is that it isn't because God doesn't love us. And the reason I know that is because I go to the cross and I see Jesus saying, I don't understand why there is suffering. But I know that the answer is not because God doesn't care. Because if I see a God who's prepared to do that for the sake of destroying evil and death, then I know he is committed to me and committed to loving and making the planet whole, and that one day there will be an answer to those things. But I don't have it now. So I know that, and I also know that at the end, ultimately, God is going to make... It's the line in the Lord of the Rings at the very end when Sam says, is everything sad going to come untrue? And Christian hope has always been based not just in what God has done, but in what because of what God has done, what God will do. And, you know, for the, 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 he- the most heavy, it's difficult, to, I'm not saying you should go away and read it now, but the, the, the most savage treatment of the, of the problem of evil ever written, it was actually written by a Christian writer, by a, a Russian novelist called Dostoevsky, who writes this incredibly bleak, bitter, savage, I cannot believe in God because of these, look at what happens to all these people, look how much evil there is. And in the same book he actually says, but I believe like a child's, that suffering will one day be healed and made up for and that all of the reasons I've got for doubting it will vanish like a pitiful mirage and it will be possible to forgive and not just to forgive, but even to justify what's happened. But we're not there yet. And that's the shape of the Christian story. And I think anything less than that, like, yeah, well, the reason it happens is because cancer happens because of this. That doesn't doesn't help me. And I haven't, I mean, I have lost people with cancer, but that's not the pressing issue. But for you or for your friend, I'm like trying to find anything other than this is evil. It's wrong. It shouldn't be here. One day it won't be, and Jesus died in order that it wouldn't be. I think that's the, that is the best we have. And with just honesty compels us to say, I can't, that, that doesn't fit under the rug. It's, it's sitting there. It's the elephant in the room. And if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't need a gospel. But I do, so I need a gospel of a dying and risen saviour who ultimately makes cancer disappear. Um, but he just hasn't done it yet. That's, I think that's all I have. Yeah. Okay, Should we just do one more? And uh, sorry, because I said I'd be done by 9.30. There's desperation here and panic. Oh, sorry. Hello. Jason has made the Oh, hello. A voice has spoken. Sorry. (laughs) I'm not in control, so don't look at me. I'm not the bad guy here. I've delegated this to these two young men. And (laughs) now look. Um, I was going to ask the question, are we saved when you say the sinner's prayer, or are we being saved after you've said the sinner's prayer? Yes and yes. In it, well... Actually, I would say I don't know. And yes, in, I, think, I think it's possible to pray the sinner's prayer as a, as a formal thing without true faith. I think people do. But I'm assuming you, assuming you repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. The Bible doesn't just say, by the way, that you, it says you have been saved, it says you are being saved, and it says you will be saved. And, so, and Paul uses all three. So salvation is, in that sense is past and present and future. You are saved in the past from all the, for like the punishment of sin. You are saved in the present from the power of sin, and you're saved in the future from the presence of sin. Right? So one day there won't even be any sin at all. Whereas now, as we go one degree in glory into another, we are being increasingly saved. But as to the judgment over our lives, that has already been passed on the basis of the work of Christ for us. So I think salvation in that sense is past, present, and future. We have been, are being, and will be saved. As a short answer to a very good question. Okay. By the way, I'm gonna. I, 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 <laughs> I, I will. I can see that there's a lot more appetite for this, and this is probably my fault for, I don't know, the shape of the evening. In some ways, um, we just. It's good that it's getting people thinking and talking. So I will stick around for a few minutes, and we'll see if we can talk about some other stuff if you would like, if that would help you. Um, either that, or you can just ask the great wisdom on the rest of your tables, who have presumably solved many of these problems in your discussion times. But if you are going to head home, thank you very much for coming out. I don't know what the score is um, for for now, but. I'm hoping that if Liverpool are winning, someone will make me aware of it. Nil-nil. Still. Oh dear. Okay. Thank you for coming.